Welcome to the Boston Faith and Justice Let's Talk Faith and Justice podcast. Ivy, Maeve, and I are here, and we're excited for you to hear this um, conversation that I had with Vernon Walker from Crew, an organization that works to build climate resiliency in vulnerable communities. So he is just a font of wisdom and knowledge on the subject. I learned so much, and um, I'm looking forward to everyone hearing that. And so Maeve, Ivy, and I thought that for an intro to that, we would engage ourselves with climate change and talk a little bit about the ways in which we either are or hope to engage with it. I'm particularly looking forward to this being a focus area for BFJN. It will allow me, I think, to learn things that I don't know and engage in ways that maybe I haven't been able to. And we hope that's our hope for the community too. So we are learning alongside everyone. So I will say um, for me, one of the areas both of participation and hope for growth is recycling. So I feel like it's such a not simple issue once you like peel back the slightest layer, right? Because it's like, well, plastic never gets recycled. Well, we should just not use plastic. Well, then if you have it, do throw it away. And all of these things, my kids make fun of me because, you know, it's reduce, reuse, recycle. Like that's the thing. But I'm like, no, the first one is refuse, right? We need to like use less stuff. They hate me. It's hard to be my child. Um, it's like, can we just go to the grocery store? So, um, so like I get that, but at the same time, like some things you buy just are plastic and it takes a lot to find alternatives, like laundry detergent, not so much. Now we've got those sheets you can use and, and a lot of different things. Um, but other things, like especially if I'm out and like grabbing something quick, which is I think the death knell of all ways to engage with climate change, right? Anything quick is like, yeah, that's not gonna, that's gonna have a lot of packaging and you're not gonna be thinking about it. So all that to say, like I try to do recycling and refusing as much as possible, but I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more about kind of how recycling works, where that industry is at and like the best ways to actually recycle the things that like, yes, I'm trying to reduce so much, but realistically I have some stuff. So like, what does that look like? So that's one of the things I'm hoping to learn a little more about. Yeah, I mean, I think on that note, my husband and I recognize that we have more recycle on a weekly basis than trash. And so just understanding more about that is definitely, you know, hope for growth because I quite frankly don't know what happens after I put it out on the sidewalk and it gets taken on Friday mornings. But for me, I'm like, trash gets taken every week and recycle only comes every other week. And I feel as though it should come every week because we have so much of it. But at the same time, like, why do we have so much recycle? And then also recognizing, like, I think it was July that was um, plastic free. I forget the exact terminology. Plastic free July. Yes. Plastic free July of how many water bottles we like plastic water bottles we go through. And um, wanting to do something about that because it's just ridiculous how much water bottles we use in our home. So I think that's the area where I'll start. Mm. Yeah, similarly to Elizabeth and to Ivy, I have, I mean, this has been an issue for me that has been uh, focused from my own life. And I've taken a lot of classes on environmental issues. And so I've done a lot of reading and research more academically based Um so that's kind of where I started, but I've definitely tried to do the same in refusing and trying to look at how much much waste I accumulate and trying to isolate specific actions at a time because it can be so overwhelming to just 
see all this plastic that you have in your life and try and okay, I'm going to get rid of all of it at one time. Like that is totally not feasible at all. So I've tried to look specifically at, for example, I love an iced coffee in the afternoon. And so when you go, that's always going to be a plastic cup. If you want a straw, that stuff is never going to break down. So I've tried to think of other ways that I can enjoy an afternoon iced coffee, but maybe without this single use plastic. So, I mean, there's always the option of bringing your own reusable cup and reusable straw to a coffee shop, but I actually have one nearby me that I have a glass jug that they actually let me refill with cold brew there. So it has been one really simple area that I've been able to kind of change my perspective and look at my actions and think specifically of how I'm impacting the environment. So I've tried to take that mindset for some other areas of my life too, and just thinking, taking a specific thing, starting there and then working from that one point. So that's how I've started to engage in the issue and actually take action myself. And I hope to continue growing in that and looking at different areas of my life and how I can be more sustainable and a better steward. Mm. I, I love that. And it made me think like, oh, does does Duncan let you use your own? Because I don't drink coffee, but I do love me a culotta in the summer. <laughs> oh, I'm like, could they take that? So I think that's an interesting question that would be cool for us to explore and like maybe offer some like, here's where you can bring your own um, cup. And yeah, because those things add up. My daughter is, she's 17. So therefore she's at Starbucks every day. And I look at those plastic cups and I'm like, uh, I mean, also they cost you like $7. So there's like a couple ways we can be, um, you know, modifying ourselves, but it did make me think, cause I know like, again, for a lot of people who are, this is like a new introductory session on climate change, like single use plastic just means like plastic. That's just using once you're not going to, it's not like the plastic cups in your cabinet, right? It's, it's plastic that gets used and then thrown away, like the plastic bags at the grocery store, that kind of thing. Um, and so in this idea, again, this is, I think, a little more nuanced that we can throw plastic into recycling, but the truth seems to be, and their reasonable minds are differing on this, that a lot of the plastic that goes to recycling just ends up in landfills anyways, for various and sundry, like geopolitical and also practical reasons, like plastic recycling just isn't much of a thing anymore. Um, this is something we'll probably explore more. But anyway, all that to say, yesterday, my husband bought me some Coke. And he bought plastic bottles, like a six pack. And they say on them, you know, made from 100% recycled plastic. And they also say recycle me on them. And so that's another curiosity I had. I just thought of that, like, are, are industries now like seeking out this plastic and reusing it? Is it, I did say 100% because I was thinking, did they throw like a tiny bit of old plastic so they can say it, but it says 100%. So I, I'm interested to know that as well. Cause I think another thing we talk about at BFDN is like kind of voting with your pocketbook. And so if there are companies that are, um, you know, actively trying to reuse plastic, then that's something I would want to support. I would love an excuse to buy more Coke. So we'll look into that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anything else for you guys? It's just interesting that you mentioned that about the Coke because yesterday there was like a different kind of Snapple tea that I saw when I was at the grocery store. And so I, I bought a bottle and I realized that it also said 100% recycled plastic on it. So it's something I want to look into. Something, yeah. Also, didn't Snapple used to be glass? Yep. Yeah. Back in the day, that's when I used to. And they have the little fun facts. on. Is that, is that Snapple? No. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, because Nantucket Nectars does that too, but that's very... Massachusetts specific. Um, okay. So, I mean, clearly there's a lot of space, like even just small steps that I think we can all take, even as people who've engaged with this issue somewhat, like 
it's a journey for everyone. And I don't think anyone is doing every single thing, right? Like everything. What's one thing? I love that you said that, Maeve. Like what's one one place I could look where I could reduce my footprint, where I could use less, where I could um, reuse more. And I think that's a great posture to take as we learn more about this. So yeah, good convo, friends. Okay, and um, stay tuned for the rest of this and the interview with Vernon. I think you'll learn a lot. I definitely did. We're here with Reverend Vernon and Vernon and I met um, years ago and we've kind of moved in the same circles a little bit. And when we decided to focus on climate change at Boston Faith and Justice this fall, you were definitely a name that I thought of as someone who could kind of help us in our community as we move into that learning time get some basic knowledge, not only about the issue itself, but also about what's going on in and around Boston and ways we can engage to make a difference. So I'm really thankful that you're taking the time to talk to us. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you for myself personally and for our community. So um, would you just introduce yourself and tell us tell us what we need to know about you? Uh, yeah, so thank you so much for the invite, Elizabeth. It's always a pleasure and a delight. Uh, and if uh, yeah, so it's it's um, I'm, if you hear any background noise, there's some construction going on outside. Uh, so for folks who may see this, if you hear background noise, that is construction happening. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm elephant happy and hippopotamus glad to be here. And uh, yeah, so really glad to talk about climate resilience. And uh, I, I serve as the I am the program director at the communities responders to extreme weather. And I'm sure we'll have time to get into that. Um, I'm originally from Philadelphia, uh, West Philadelphia, born and raised. Uh, that's where I spent most of my young days. And uh, yeah, so grew up in Philly and, and then moved to Boston about 11 years ago. Um, in that 11 years, the last, uh, a little bit over four years, I have been involved in the environmental movement. And I'm sure we'll get a chance to unpack all that, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right, awesome, thank you. Yeah, so, Crew um, communities responding to extreme weather um, is is an organization. How long has Crew been around? Uh, yes, Crew has been around since 2018. Okay. It is a program under the Better Future Project, and the and the Better Future the Better Future Project was established in 2014. Uh, and uh, our office location is in Cambridge in the Harvard Square area. Uh, so, uh, the Better Future Project has served as an incubator for lots of different types of programs that, um, such as Mothers Out Front, in case folks may be familiar with that, that first was a program under the Better Future Project. Uh, so yeah, so the program is being incubated by, uh, the, the, the BFP as a program under, under, uh, the Better Future Project. Okay. Oh, that's great. It's so interesting to see the genesis of different projects and organizations and the ways in which other organizations support and launch and, um, you know, collaborate. I just think the, um, the network in around Boston is really exciting that way. I just feel like there's a lot of collaboration. So that's, that's really interesting to hear that story. So will you tell us a little bit about crew, the mission, the vision, um, and specifically your role there and, and what you do? Um, yes, I would be. I would be delighted to. Uh, so, uh, Crew is a network of local leaders building grassroots climate resilience through inclusive and hands-on education, service, and planning. Uh, together, we work to equip families and communities with the resources and the capacity to prepare for and respond to local climate changes equitably, sustainably, and collaboratively. 
so essentially, our model is that social resilience, the best way to become climate resilience is through social resilience. And we know that extreme weather is here, um, such as extreme heat, uh, extreme flooding. And in some parts of the country, we have uh, tornadoes and, and hurricanes, et cetera. Uh, so these are all a manifestation of climate change. And CREW was started uh, with the idea in mind that we should approach climate change in a nonpartisan way, mm -hmm. uh, because we know that climate change has been highly politicized uh, and it is a divisive issue when it should not be a divisive issue. Uh, my thought on it is that climate change is the greatest existential threat to our existence. Uh, so it's going to take a uh, collaborative effort uh, from people across the political aisles, from folks across different communities uh, to be able to survive extreme weather. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the inspiration uh, that uh, helped launch crew uh, was a study that was done in 1995 and you know, for the Chicago heat wave. There was a massive heat wave that killed 739 people in Chicago uh, in five days. It was atrocious. And there were some studies done and there was a documentary uh, called Cook Survival by Zip Code. If folks are interested in looking that up, um, there is also a book. Uh, there is also a book published by Eric Klingenberg. Uh, and he, at the time, was a graduate student at UC Berkeley. Uh, and he, he did a study on a block-by-block -block analysis. And the name of that book is called Heat Wave, a Social, a Social Autopsy of the Disaster in Chicago. And one of the things that he found from his research uh, was that neighbors that are socially connected to each other um, are likely to survive extreme weather events. And the folks that didn't die in Chicago the reason they survived, uh, they also, you know, those communities are also the folks that survived in underserved communities uh, were able to connect with neighbors and uh, to to get to get to uh, be in a cool place or come to sit in their AC or sit in the AC in a car or go to a place that provides AC. So um, that led to the that was part of the inspiration of Crew. Um, so what Crew has morphed into now is, you know, three buckets of work, uh, research, uh, resource distribution, and education. Um, mm -hmm. So we do a lot of workshops around, uh, when we, when we are, and we're invited by community-based organizations and, uh, and et cetera. And we, when we go to a particular community, we, we talk about the, the local weather impacts we, we talk about the local weather impacts that that community faces. Uh, and we talk about the, you know, whether it's heat waves or floods and how people can prepare for it. So in the summertime, uh, for the last several summers, we have been doing best practices for state pool workshops. Uh, we've done them in Brockton. Uh, we've done them in Mattapan. We've done them in Dorchester. We've done them in the South End. And the commonality with all those locations that I mentioned uh, and for those that don't know, Brockton is a city about 45 minutes away from Boston. Uh, but all the 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 commonality with all those locations uh, is that they all suffer, uh, and, and there's a lot of parts of Brockton that suffer from the urban heat island impact. But they suffer from the urban heat island impact, which mm -hmm. makes the community much more hotter. 
uh, and the urban heat island impact is a combination, uh, or I'm sorry, urban heat islands, urban, yes, the urban heat island impact uh, or effect, the urban heat island effect, we should say. Um, that, is, that is a combination of more concrete asphalts, uh, black roofs, and, and lack of green space. Mm. Uh, so people that live in those communities are susceptible or additionally susceptible to experience heat strokes uh, heat and heat exhaustion. And uh, so what we've done is we've distributed energy efficient air conditioning units in those communities. Uh, we've also distributed cooling kits uh, and cooling kits are little bags that have water, uh, thermometer, uh, thermometers in it, water in it, uh, cool patches. Um, Etc. And and that is designed for people to take with them to to if they have to go outside to be able to uh, treat and protect against heat exhaustion. Yeah. Okay. So I just have well, I'm like a million follow up questions. If there's so much information there, and it's really helpful. Um, but can you say a little more about the urban heat island effect? I feel like that's a phrase I haven't heard. It sounds really important, and I I understood it from the basic context you just gave, but. I'm as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, does that mean that it's hotter in cities? Does that mean that individuals who are interacting with that space like get hotter faster? Like, how does that actually manifest in terms of climate change and, and heat? And is there a similar effect in the cold? Um, I have a picture of a map. I don't know if I can share the screen. I do, I don't know if viewers will oh. be able to. I have a whole picture of the greater Boston area. That, that will walk us through the urban urban heat island impact and show us visually what it is. Okay, yeah. Do All that. right, then give me one second and I will pull that up and then I'll okay. be happy to answer a question that you raised, but I also think it'll be helpful to have this visual this visual clue as well. Yeah. Um, you know, for for our visual learners and those who you know, those who like to see things visually, uh and I myself am a visual learner, so I like to see things visually. Uh, so I am just pulling it up here. Okay. So give me one second. I, I wasn't uh, planning on sharing it, so we just, but since the question oh. came that way. Yeah, that's... Good. No, 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 since the question came that way. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. So every PowerPoint I'm opening, if not opening so give me one second no problem Hmm. Yeah, give me one second. It's it's I, I have it here. It's just not opening in my PowerPoint. So let me just go somewhere else with it. But in the meantime, I can start maybe just sharing while I look for that. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the, so urban heat island impact is normally it normally impacts inner cities. Uh, these are traditionally underserved communities, uh, and and communities of color because mo most communities most inner city communities are uh, made up of folks that are part of the community or part of a community of color. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and what it does is it, it makes the temperature in that neighborhood feel up to 20 degrees hotter than surrounding areas that have trees. So trees do really make the difference, um, okay. particularly when we're talking about uh, when we're talking about uh, when we're talking about tree canopy. Uh, they they certainly do uh, make the difference in helping to cool a community down. Okay. Uh, and that's that's um, yeah, that's 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 why you know we have tree advocates and those who are advocating for trees. And I myself am, you know, I believe we need more trees. Uh, you know, I think we need more trees because uh, they not only provide shade, but they also, as we mentioned, help cool 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 the neighborhood down. So essentially, for a neighborhood that does not have uh, trees in them uh, and they suffer from the urban heat island impact they can be up to 20 degrees hotter than the surrounding communities. And this map that I'm going to show, it's <laughs> going to show, it's going to show Brookline. Uh, it's going to show Brookline and how Brookline has, uh, how Brookline. Has, oh, okay. I finally, finally found a copy. So let's now, uh, let's now open this copy here. All right. So let's open this up. And let's go, let's jump right into our map. Uh, okay, so now let me sh- share the screen. All right, uh, we're ready. Yeah. Um, so do you see this here? Yes, yep, there it is. So, so this is the urban heat island impact on Boston and greater Boston area. So if we look at Chelsea up here, and maybe it's hard to see because there's little bars up here. So let me move this bar down for a second. Um, so Chelsea is one example is a is a is a city. The whole city is an urban heat island, all 1.9 miles of it, it's because okay. there's a lot more asphalt, and as we mentioned, and there is a uh, lack of green space. Now, come with me. Do you see my arrow over here yep. at Brookline? Yes. So, so the question is, what's the difference between Brookline and a place like Dorchester? That's where Ashmont is right here. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is a predominantly a community of color and uh, and uh, uh, lack of green space. Uh, but Brookline is traditionally a white, wealthier community, and you can see that there's a lot more trees there. Uh, okay. And that's what that's why this is blue. When you think of Franklin Park, I don't know if you're familiar with Franklin Park, probably where the zoo is and mm-hmm. and um, Roxbury. That has a lot of trees. So you can see why this part of Roxbury where it's mostly blue. So these darker orange places, like the South End, uh, they, uh, heat, tra- uh, heat also gets trapped in the concrete and then it releases at night. So not only is it hot during the day, but it's also hot during the nighttime. And this is particularly dangerous for the, for the unhoused population or folks who are just hanging, hanging out. Um, or, or, or I should say, let me back up. I should say for, for, for people that hang out at night, okay. you're wondering why it may feel hotter because the heat that's trapped in the concrete is releasing at night. So I want to clarify. Um, so, yeah, so this is a picture of the urban heat island impact just for some limited cities. You see Cambridge, Somerville. So you see you see all this dark orange and orange. Uh, and so, yeah, so Logan Airport, East Boston, 
you know, that's definitely what's called an environmental justice community. So normally the folks that suffer from urban heat islands are also environmental justice communities. Um, and that means communities that are at the front line of the effects of, of climate change. Um, so I, I know I said a lot. Let me put a pin to see if there's any questions or thoughts yeah. or ideas. No, this is, this is actually really helpful um, to see it laid out like that visually. So I'm thankful that we have that and people might be listening to the podcast and you can't see the map, but we also have it on YouTube. So you could go over there and look at it. Um, so I think this really drives home the point that you're making about the ways in which communities are impacted by climate change, things that are, it's not, you're not saying there isn't ways to mitigate it, trees, for example, but like, this is the reality that we're living with. And so how do we respond? Um, and so g- given these realities, I guess, what is the balance in terms of your thoughts and, and crew's response to, well, let's change the topography of this map and try to get things more blue balanced with people are currently living with these conditions and how do we serve them? Um, uh, yeah. So one other thing, one of our responses, so tree is a natural air conditioner. Um, that doesn't emit any carbon. So one of our responses is that we help provide these air conditioner units in some of those communities that you saw that was orange, mm-hmm. um, which you didn't see in there with Brockton, but uh, some of those communities, Mattapan, Dorchester, uh, Mattapan, Dorchester, and the South End. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we've been trying to, uh, we have been distributing air conditioners there. Uh, and it's, it's, I mean, we would like to install fuel pumps, but they just did, we just haven't found the funding for that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we have, we are in constant communication with, or I'll say we're in regular communication rather with, uh, Speak for the Trees, uh, which is an organization that's all about tree planting because tree crew, crew is not necessarily, uh, focused on tree planting, uh, although I think we support it. Um, and we're excited because we do have a hub program uh, and we can talk about hubs in a second. But um, one of the other ways we combat the, this is uh, working with our hubs. So hubs are organization. Uh, they're organizations uh, such as that. So that, that is a trusted community anchoring institution uh, and in a, in a local community. Uh, mm-hmm. and such as a library, a lot of our hubs are libraries. Uh, uh, we have faith communities, we have schools and nonprofits, and crew works with these community institutions to help educate residents about extreme weather preparedness and mm-hmm. other impacts of climate change. Uh, and a lot of what the hubs do is they 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 display literature um, around. Uh, best practices to prepare for whatever extreme weather impacts that community. And because this program is nationwide, we have all different types of literature, like around hurricane preparedness mm. uh, or droughts. And we might not necessarily see hurricanes here, in the, at least right now, in, in the greater Boston area. But, you know, Hurricane Sandy, that super strong Sandy that hit, happened in 2012, that would have hit Boston and done more damage in Boston that would have done more devastating damage to Boston if it had hit five hours earlier at high tide. So we mm-hmm. know that New York and New Jersey have received damages uh, because of uh, because of Hurricane Sandy. So Boston was just lucky to miss uh, 
the worst of the damages because of the high, because the, the, the storm had missed the high tide. Um, so uh, uh, reverting back to our hub program. So uh, yeah, we the hub permanently display literature around climate preparedness. They host at least, and they all host at least one educational event per year mm. uh, around climate preparedness or climate change. So that is one of our main offerings is working with these community-based organizations. I'll give an example. I talked about uh, the, the best practices to stay cool workshop, which consists of uh, PowerPoints that we, that crew, we go into a community and we do, that suffers from urban heat island, that suffering from the urban heat island impact. We do a PowerPoint presentation and we talk about, you know, this is how, ex- this is the expected amount of hot days that we're expecting to see in this area. Um, and then we also work with physicians. So I didn't even get a chance to talk about that. So at these workshops, we have, we provide food. We, uh, we do a PowerPoint presentation. We also raffle off air conditioners. And for the Brockton situation, we just give out air conditioners because we have, you know, over a hundred that we distribute. Uh, but for our Boston effort last year, we just raffled them all be- because we had a smaller quantity of air conditioner and we wanted to try to do it in an equitable way. Um, and we also, we invite physicians and they come and they talk about the physical impact of heat exhaustion and heat stroke. And, and they talk with, uh, the folks that come to the, uh, to the events uh, with about, this is how you know that you're experiencing heat strokes. And this is how you know that you're experiencing heat exhaustion. And these events have happened at two of our hubs. So in the South End, the St. Stephen's Episcopal Church is the hub of ours. And also the Boston Nature Center in Mattapan is the hub of ours. So we worked with those two organizations last year to host the events um, and where we invited the local community uh, to come and partake in our um, our best practices to stay cool workshop. Okay. Wow. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot going on. Uh, we talked about that earlier and that's again, helpful to understand this resiliency piece. So how you're, how you're partnering with communities and then building this idea of resiliency. Obviously right now we can all feel this, the heat impact. I mean, I feel like the heat we've been experiencing and then understanding how it might be more extreme in certain geographic places near, near us. Um, I think that's really helpful as we imagine, think about climate change and its impact. What are some of the ways in which not in the summer, so non-heat related, um, climate change issues you got, you guys have sought to address or you're seeing, or you're wanting to be able to address. You mentioned hurricanes as not being a generally a particular problem for the Boston area, but what else, um, what else are you seeing in terms of um, climate change impact? Uh, flooding. And you, I think you asked the question earlier that I want to return to about some of the other impacts uh, or about what we do around the rest of the year besides heat. Yeah. Um, so flooding is an issue. So parts of East Boston floods, uh, parts of, well, uh, Back Bay, uh, parts of Dorchester. So various communities in Boston suffer from flooding. Like when we think Dorchester, we think of, I'm thinking about Marcy Boulevard and Gallivan Boulevard. And for, um, and for those who don't know, Dorchester is an underserved community in, in, in Boston. Uh, so what we have done, we have flood kits as well. I talked about the, 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 the heat kits. We also have flood kits where we have distributed these uh, we have distributed these um, in East Boston for last uh, last summer. We're hoping to raise more funds so we can do uh, these more more of these winter workshops. 
um, we, the, I think the reason that we prioritize heat is because heat is the leading pillar of extreme weather across the United States. But I do have a bar graph that shows the, okay. the amount of how, how the deaths, uh, of the amount of folks that die uh, per like hurricane, uh, heat waves, flood, um, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so so what else we also do is research. I talked about that. So we published research. Uh, I talked about that a little earlier, but not full full in content, not fully in depth. Uh, we have published research with Tufts University folks uh, around social connections and extreme weather. Uh, that report is on our website. Uh, so we 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 did a six month study of folks that live in Chinatown and Roxbury, and just to understand where people are want to turn to. Or do they know where to turn to during extreme weather events? And the findings found that they don't really know where to turn to, at least from our sample size, during extreme weather emergency. Um, so we, um, yeah, so uh, so in terms of our winter, so I want a kit, so I want a book bag. So when I want a book bag, we have, this is really designed for people that live in flood prone communities. And I think I mentioned that we, we, we have given out some in East Boston uh, last fall. Uh, they are, they are uh, uh, um, emergency. Uh, they are emergency. Uh, they're first aid. They are batteries. They are blankets. They are flashlights. Uh, they are waterproof matches. So the design, etc., cetera, uh, uh, a can opener, uh, medicine mm-hmm. divider for folks who are on medication. And the idea behind these blood book bags is to. Uh, for people to grab and go, even they can put as a as a waterproof uh, document protector in there as well. The idea is for people to grab and go, um, like if they have to go to the top floor or to the roof uh, uh, in a flooded area. We saw that in Hurricane Katrina with Hurricane Katrina. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So that's um, that has what that has uh, that that has been our flood program. Uh, uh, somewhat of our flood. We we do have workshops around flooding. We haven't delivered those as much as we have done with the heat. Um, mm-hmm. And so Boston, answer your question. So Boston is a coastal city. I know folks don't really think of it like that, but um, you know we talk about different areas that flood. Uh, we and we know that climate change is uh, creating a wetter environment. Um, and because it's a wetter environment, we're going to see more intense storms. Uh, we talked about, and we talked about heat waves. We know about the snow, you know, we know about snow. And uh, so those are some of the weather impacts that have impacted the Boston area, that historically and concurrently. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, and then just thinking about, I mean, obviously you've talked a lot about the specific things you guys are doing, but I'm just curious about ways in which people can support your work. I mean, obviously we can donate um, as, as yeah. you know. Yes, that's always a really important way to support your work. So I want to just push that forward initially. But what other ways can people um, support the work that you're doing or participate in the work that you're doing? So we have a climate. Thank you for that question. We do have a climate prep week uh, where we have a week of activities in September. And we also have an interfaith summit. So I know we have previously talked about uh, the the heat workshop, the hubs program. But we also have a week in September, uh, the 24th to the 30th where we do a lot of events. Our website still has the 2022 program uh, because we're going to switch uh, in the next month to the 2023. 
so we do do all. So we have a week of services, a week of activity, week of educational event. Uh, folks are welcome to attend those. Um, and then our interfaith summit happens once a year in the springtime. Uh, we did it in early June. It was technically still springtime, uh, and uh, folks are welcome to come to those. Uh, folks are welcome to sign up for our email list. Um, mm -hmm. Folks are welcome to follow us on social media. Uh, yeah, and yeah, and like you said, donate. We certainly, you know, are a grassroots program, and we depend on the generous gifts of, of donors and otherwise. So we would certainly. And there is a donate button on the website, so we certainly would appreciate you know financial contribution. And if folks want to reach out to me or our team, our emails is on the website. If you go to our, our team on the crew website, and there's folks that people think that I should be connecting with or connect with uh, to talk about you know some of the work that we do at crew. We, we're happy to have those conversations. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's great. And we'll um, we'll share the link to your website um, so that people can connect with that easily as they listen to the conversation. And we'll certainly be happy to share Climate Week and participate in whatever we we can as Boston Faith and Justice. Um, I just think your work is so compelling. It's it's unique in the sense of this social resilience response to climate change. And I just really appreciate your work. So I just want to express that and the good you're doing in the community. And um, I'm really thankful that you took the time so we could learn a little bit from you and hopefully find ways to partner in the future. Yeah, and I appreciate the work that y'all are doing. And uh, we're, I'm inspired by the good work that y'all are doing. And I'm looking forward to us staying connected. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much.